So John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now there is a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Thank you very much, Lucy. It'd be great if you um, could keep that passage open in front of you, and you'll see a, a very simple outline, uh, which we'll come to in a moment. Um, well, I said before, didn't I, that the coming of Jesus into the world uh, must be the most celebrated and well-known and retold story in the history of the world. Can you think of an event that has been told and retold with varying degrees of accuracy, of course, than the story of Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger? And so I think no one could argue with the fact, whatever your view of Jesus and the Bible might be, I don't think anyone could argue with the fact that the coming of Jesus into the world is a big deal. Christmas, the message that we're thinking about today, is a big deal for the world. But could it be that we have misunderstood it? Could it be that the telling and retelling of the story over the years is a good thing, but we have slightly missed the point? Could it even be that the way we celebrate Christmas 
has obscured its real meaning? Could it even be that the things we do to celebrate Christmas are actually ways that we avoid the real meaning of Christmas because that real meaning can be a little bit challenging for us to hear. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try this morning, just for a couple of minutes, to strip back the traditions, to strip away the, uh, the tinsel and the, uh, the shiny bits and pieces, the traditions that sort of stop us appreciating Christmas. Can I reach this one, is the question. I'll get to that in a second. Got even strip away the Christmas dinner. And certainly we're going to strip away Santa. We're even going to strip away the baby in the manger. Maybe I should have used this to Menflix teapot. I forgot I had it. And we're going to get to the real heart of Christmas. I think I've overdone the tinsel. Excellent. That's our task for the next few minutes. What is Christmas really about? Well, to find that out, come back with me to the second reading, the one that Lucy read. Hopefully you've got it open there. I want to draw your attention to verse 16, which is probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. You may have seen people holding up banner, John 3.16, at football matches. And I want to draw your attention to a particular word, the word gave. The word gave. Because of all the Christmas traditions, probably the most well-known, the most observed, is the giving and receiving of gifts, isn't it? But the thing about gifts, it does communicate something about the giver, doesn't it? The gift communicates something about the giver. And I think this is where gift giving, for adults at least, can be a little bit tricky. There are those sort of little unwritten protocols. You know, they gave us this last year, so we've got to give them this this year. There's a sort of tit-for-tat thing going on. And then there's the protocol surrounding the present draw. We can sort of spot, can't we, sometimes when the present has come out of last year's unwanted presents. That's okay, we all do it. But it does tell you something, doesn't it? Now, I reckon, what what is the perfect gift? I think the perfect gift needs to be two things. It needs to be generous and useful. It needs to be generous and useful. See, let me show you my stocking. Where is my stocking? I know it's mine because it's got the letters DR written on it. And uh, I'm uh, going to open my last present this morning. And it's a piece of wood. Alex is thrilled again. <laughs> now, there, it's, a, it's, it's useful. We've got a log burner. I love wood. It's useful, nice seasoned wood. I can burn it later on. But it's not very generous, is it? It's not very generous. A truckload would have been generous. <laughs> but what about this? You know the, uh, the 12 Days of Christmas song? Uh, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. Second day, what was it, two turtle doves, three French hens, four calling birds, five gold rings, six... Okay, you get the idea. Now, if you were to give all of those things to your true love at Christmas, it would be a very generous gift. 
In fact, there's a financial services organization works out every year how much it would cost to give all of these things, and it comes to 159,571 pounds 64 pence. I don't know how they do that. I don't know whether they factor in the, the living costs of the milkmaids or whatever. But this is a generous gift, but it's not very useful. Do you want to have to house all those leaping lords and so on? But in our passage, we see God is a generous giver. And the two points on the outline express it like this, that he gives us the greatest gift imaginable, and it is the only gift we need. It is generous and it is useful. So let's look at it just for a few minutes together. Firstly, God gives us the greatest gift imaginable because look at what he gives us in verse 16. He gives us his one and only son. Now, if you're a a Christian, if you're a convinced Christian this morning, or if you've been around church things for a long time, I want to try and help you to see that for the awesome generosity that it is. Awesome is a, use, people, a word people use too easily. That pizza was awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. God gives us his son. But when did he give his son? Notice that in this passage, there's no mention of Christmas. Did you notice that? There's no mention of the baby in the manger. In fact, John is one of the two gospel writers who doesn't mention the baby at all. And when he says gave his son, he's not even talking about giving his son to have a kind of a presence on earth, as if that would do anything particularly for us. No, he is talking about the ultimate giving, which is to give his son in his death. He actually gives the life of his son. Now, remember those sobering, amazing, and true facts we talked about before. I want to suggest that this is the sobering, and amazing and true fact about Christmas. Because can you imagine a more valuable gift than giving your son? If you're a father here today, can you think of anything that you would give up your child for? But God is generous beyond our imaginations. He gives us his son, not to be present with us, but to die. He gives us the life of his son. Well, why would he do that? Well, look at that sentence again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, this is where the Christmas message just just begins to get a little bit challenging, a little bit uncomfortable. Because if we are to receive this gift, we need to understand something about ourselves that Jesus says very clearly here, that we are perishing. What does he mean by that? Well, let me illustrate with... Last year's Christmas tree. This is our Christmas tree last year. And uh, I, the only thing I did was put the star on, which you can't even see. But the, the rest of the family decorated it beautifully. It is beautiful, isn't it? Decorated with all sorts of lovely lights and decorations. But I'll show you what our Christmas tree looks like now. Because every year I chop it up for kindling. It looks like this. But the thing is, the Christmas tree there is already perishing. It was already perishing when it was cut down by a chainsaw and taken to the shop. It was already perishing when we brought it home. 
the whole time we were enjoying it in our front room, decorated, looking beautiful and alive and dazzling, it was perishing, it was dead. And that tells us exactly what Jesus means by perishing here. Death in the Bible is not just the thing that happens at the end, when you get old and die. Death is what is happening to us all, all the time. And the consequence of the, the, the reason for death is a broken relationship with God. Just as the chainsaw cuts off the Christmas tree at its base, stopping it getting roots and, uh, to its roots, stopping it drinking the water and the nutrients it needs to keep alive, so the Bible tells us we have cut ourselves off from a relationship with God, the source of life that we need. We are perishing. And that is why Jesus entered the world, to solve that particular problem. You see, if you think about it, we can do the Christmas tree thing. We can make ourselves look alive, can't we? Hopefully not with tinsel, that would be a bit odd. But we can decorate ourselves, we can put makeup on and cosmetics and take medicines and drink lots of healthy things and exercise and we can put off the moment of death so we actually feel and look like we're alive but we are perishing just like the Christmas tree and so if that's the problem how does God's son's death solve the problem well think back to the reading from Numbers 21 It turns out that to understand the heart of Christmas, we've got to think about that snake. Can you see the bronze snake? Because we read in Numbers 21 this incredible story, didn't we? About the Israelites crossing the desert on their way to the promised land and grumbling against God. Can you imagine? God has just saved them out of slavery in Egypt. He's taken them to the land of milk and honey and they're grumbling about this miserable food. And so God sets up a little visual image, a little story, a little miniature image of the world and of our problem in the desert. This is 1,500 years before Jesus. And he sends out snakes among the people to show them the consequences of rejecting him are so serious. Can you imagine being bitten by one of those snakes You've just had your freedom from Egypt. You're now in the desert and you've been bitten by a snake and you can feel the poison coursing through your body. And God does that because he knows that they have already rejected him in their hearts. But remember what happened? Moses prays for God's mercy. He knows that God is merciful. He asks God to have mercy. And so he sets up a a pole in the desert with a bronze snake on, as a kind of a, a, a strange and surprising remedy for this poison. So that all you have to do when you've been bitten by the snake is look at the snake as an act of belief, an act of trust in God, and you feel the poison leaving your body. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And so listen to how Moses might have put the gospel back then to the Israelites. He might have said something like this, God so loved the sinful, grumbling people of Israel, even though they had rejected him as God, that he made them a bronze snake on a pole, so that whoever believes in it shall not perish, but make it to the promised land. 
And now look with me back at verse 14 of the passage where Jesus actually uses this to explain his death. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be lifted up that everyone who believes on him may have eternal life. And so that brings us to the heart of Christmas. It is a wooden cross. It is the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, not the baby, but the man who always lived perfectly with God as king, giving himself, climbing onto the pole to take the sting of death for us, to bring us in his death the forgiveness that will draw the poison out of our bodies and out of our souls. Isn't that generous? The most generous, amazing gift that we can imagine. But secondly, it is the only gift we need. Because have another look at verse 16. See, one more thing we need to see. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see the significance of that? That Jesus is not just promising to save us from perishing. He is also giving us something on top of that. Now, what is this eternal life? Well, in the English language, partly because of a particular cultural baggage that we have, the phrase eternal life just just sounds different to how it does in the Bible. It sounds like life that just goes on and on and on. Life now that just goes on and on and on. So it sounds a little bit like Jesus has solved the problem by stopping us perishing, and so we're just going to live forever and ever. And as flowers, Jesus is going to have them on a mantelpiece for forever and ever and ever, plastic flowers. Is that what Jesus means by eternal life? Well, no, in the Bible, eternal life means something much bigger and much better. And so if I open this wonderful present, and if I could ask maybe, uh, Paul, do you want to come and uh, collect your chocolates? Bigger and better, much bigger and much better, more generous chocolates. You can actually take those home and keep them to yourself. Now, uh, here are some sour snakes just to pick up at the end, and I'm going to give these to the, uh, to the Rose family, uh, the, sorry, the, the Abbott family, <laughs> to, to give out at the door at the end. Is that all right? Um, now, what else have we got here? What else have we got? Okay, Anna, do you want to come and collect your flowers? Beautiful, fresh flowers, the real deal, none of this fake nonsense, and I know you like those ones. Now, Simon, that uh, popcorn that can never satisfy, how would you like a popcorn machine? <laughs> and, uh, oh look, before I get to Flick, uh, who would like to hand these out of the door? What about the McSweeney family and the, and the Goody family? You can hand these out of the door on the way. It's generous, it's extravagant, it's unnecessary, it's God's, God's kindness. You hear what I said there? Turned out, didn't you? You heard that bit. Felicity. Whoa. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> the hazards of <laughs> wooden crosses. Um, <laughs> Felicity. A lovely teapot. There you go. But there's more. There is some more in here. See, imagine if you got some cards for Christmas 
And you start out, and you know the things that people write in cards, you know, best wishes and all that. But imagine if the card said, I'm giving you for Christmas a cure for all sickness. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? Cure for sickness. Imagine if the card said, relationships mended. That'd be pretty good. Imagine if the card said, wars ended. Are we going? That'd be pretty good. What else do you want for Christmas? Injustice put right. Anyone ever wanted injustice put right? What if all your mistakes and regrets could be forgotten and guilt washed away? And here's the big one. What if for Christmas we could have peace with God? See, that is what Jesus means by eternal life. It is the greatest gift imaginable. It's extravagant. It's extraordinary. It is nothing that we deserve. It is everything we need. But it comes to us only through the death of Jesus on the cross. And so if you've got your Bibles open, if I could just turn you now to John 5.24. John 5.24. And this is where we're going to end. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And so I'm going to pray in a moment, but I want to encourage two groups of people, which I think covers everybody here. Firstly, if you are already a convinced Christian this morning, I want to encourage you today to just pause and grasp again the, the magnitude, the momentousness of this gift. And we are guilty, aren't we, of taking it for granted so often. But may I encourage you, if you're a Christian this morning, to just stop and think. Whatever else is happening today, whatever else is going on in your life, that you might know this joy in a fresh way, and you'll remember with breathtaking thankfulness what Jesus has done. But I want to offer a word of encouragement to you if you're not a convinced follower of Jesus. It's so good to have you with us. We're so pleased to welcome you into our church this morning. I hope you can come back. I want to offer a word of encouragement to you, but it's a slightly more uncomfortable word. Because I need to be honest with you about your situation if you have not put your trust in Jesus. If you've not done what the Israelites did in the desert and just looked at the snake on the pole, knowing that God was going to put things right. Well, it's very clear in the verse I just read, isn't it? That you are perishing now and you will perish in eternity Unless you allow Jesus to draw out the poison of death, you will perish forever. And so I want to encourage you to turn from your sin this morning and accept with great thankfulness this gift. And what better time than Christmas Day to make that change? I'm going to give us a chance to do that. You'll find a prayer that's been printed on the bottom of the sheet. This will be a wonderful prayer to pray on Christmas Day or any other time. And I'm going to ask us to bow our heads and I'll lead us in prayer before we sing. Heavenly Father, I admit that I've rejected you as God and rebelled against you in my thinking, speaking and actions. 
Thank you that you have not treated me as I deserve, but instead Jesus has died in my place so my sins might be forgiven. Please forgive me and cleanse me so I might receive eternal life today. And please help me to live from now on with Jesus in charge of my life. Amen.